We're fast approaching not only the end of the year, but the end of the decade. For many across the Middle East, the 2010s have seen upheaval, war, destruction, revolution and terrorism. If you take a moment to think back at the issues that have dominated the Middle East over the last 10 years, it can be easy to be overwhelmed by the bleak picture it paints. The Arab uprisings, the brutal Syrian war, the rise of ISIS, the slide into chaos in both Libya and Yemen, the counter-revolutions, the crackdowns on protesters in Iraq and Iran, and the displacement of millions of Syrians and Iraqis. It's been a time of profound change, but not all of it for the worse. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week on Beyond the Headlines, we're going to travel across the region, speaking to the National's writers and reporters who have been covering the biggest stories from the Middle East and around the world for the past decade. Tunisia, where the self-immolation of Mohamed Bouazizi sparked a wave of uprisings, the effect of which we're still seeing today, is, albeit slowly, finding its feet as a new democracy. While the myriad of crises facing the region have held back so many, there is movement on meeting the UN Millennium Development Goals in the region that has long lagged behind. For many, education has improved this decade. So too has health, living standards and societies. There are pockets of stability and calm, areas of the Gulf, for example, where these stories are clustered. But there are early signs that this is beginning to touch other areas from Egypt to Iraq. So we'll hear the Nationals' writers' take on the issues that have shaped the past 10 years, the stories that have stood out for them, and some of the key themes that will continue to shape the region for the years to come. But first, let's go back to Tunisia, just before the start of the decade. On December 17th, 2010, Tunisian Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire. Unable to find work, he'd been selling fruit by the side of the road until his cart was confiscated by a local official. His death brought together hundreds and then thousands who were tired of fighting alone against a system that offered them nothing and blocked them from building a better life for themselves and their families. The sentiment grew and grew, spreading across not only Tunisia, but Libya, Egypt, Syria and elsewhere. While Tunisia would see the departure of President Ben Ali, a period of reflection, reforms and elections, it's been slow, but nearly 10 years later, the country is starting to make progress. Elsewhere, it was more chaotic. Syria is still embroiled in a civil war that's killed hundreds of thousands and displaced millions. Libya, too, has fractured with the violence since the NATO-led intervention to help opponents remove Muammar Gaddafi. Egypt saw dark days after the Muslim Brotherhood official Mohamed Morsi was elected as president. He governed for a year before being removed by the military amid more mass demonstrations. The man who headed the military at the time, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, is now the president of Egypt. And again, things are rapidly changing. Nine years after they began, the Middle East today is facing another round of mass uprisings against long-standing leaders and political systems. Just in the last year, Algerians on the streets have forced the departure of Abdelaziz Bouteflika. Sudanese brought down the autocratic Omar al-Bashir Nearly 500 protesters have been killed demanding a new government in Iraq, and some reports say more than 1,500 protesters demanding reforms in Iran were murdered by the state. And in Lebanon, the government resigned after two weeks of mass rallies, but even there, the protests continue. 
So here's Joyce Karam, the National's Washington correspondent, reflecting on the shifts of the decade and the parallels between today and 2011. The biggest story uh, of the decade uh, from the Middle East, I think, is the Arab Spring uh, that started in 2011 and has already brought in massive uh, changes to the region, whether we talk about uh, Tunisia, Yemen, Egypt, uh, and Syria, nothing is the same anymore. Uh, So in a sense, when we talk about human potential or stability, it's a very different uh, conversation. As we see in uh, Lebanon and Iraq, the popular uh, wave of protests uh, continues. And that story that started at the beginning of the decade with the Arab Spring is not uh, over yet. Taylor Luck, a regular contributor to the national based in the Jordanian capital of Amman, has his own reflections on the rise of Arab youth. We started the 2010s with mass protests for change in Tunisia, and we are ending the decade with young protesters risking their life once again for change and refusing the status quo in Lebanon and Iraq. It is a theme in political development that is ongoing, evolving, and will continue to shape the region well past 2020. And what defined the past decade has been Arab states' response to these calls. The majority of these populations are under the age of 30, many are graduating university and unable to find the job and life they were promised. These young Arab men and women have pushed for a change in the social contract that in many of these countries were no longer attainable or sustainable. As we've seen, some leaders have fallen, others like in Syria, have doubled down and turned to repression and war, but other Arab states have tried to get out in front and meet the needs of young Arab men and women, whether it be transforming the private sector, higher education, creating jobs, or simply opening up to the world. What has defined these young Arab movements for change is that they've had no real political basis. They've been without party or ideology, crossing old socioeconomic sectarian lines from the streets of Tunis to the streets of Beirut today. Hamza Hendewi, the National's Cairo correspondent, has been on the ground in Sudan several times over the last few months, charting the country's transition from the autocratic Omar al-Bashir to the current transitional Joint Military-Civilian Administration. He sees the changes taking place there very much in the continuation of the story of the Arab uprisings. Sudan is probably the only success story of the popular uprisings that uh, we are seeing and some people are branding as a second wave of Arab Spring uprisings. Sudan's uprising began in December 2018 and, and continued for about four months before the military intervened and removed President Omar al-Bashir, an Islamist who came to power following a military coup in 1989. After months of tortuous negotiations between the protest leaders and the military who removed uh, President Bashir, they have reached a power-sharing agreement in August, 
which uh, stipulated that there would be a transitional period lasting for more than three years. The success story of the Sudan uprising is possibly rooted, according to activists who and iconic figures behind that uprising, it's, it's rooted in how they, they say they have learned the lessons from the first wave of uprisings in Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Libya. And uh, these countries also, because of the chaos there, they have invited uh, foreign meddling and foreign uh, military intervention. This is not the case in Sudan. The, uh, the, the prominent activists behind the uprisings are, are more or less monitoring, actively monitoring uh, how things are going with the cabinet and the sovereign council. They are also uh, monitoring uh, the purging or the uprooting of all the um, the president's men in the civil service, in, in government departments. What, what these activists uh, are saying is that, uh, uh, that after they have successfully uh, forced the removal of uh, Mr. al-Bashir, uh, they, 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 they are now the guarantors that the revolution's uh, principles are implemented, that Sudan gets a new start. But there are stumbling blocks in Sudan, and their serious challenge is how to convince rebel movements in the west and of the country and in areas south of Khartoum to lay down their arms and join in the government. But in the chaos of the Syrian uprisings and the brutal repression meted out by Bashar al-Assad on his own people, extremism rose. And none more prominently than ISIS. The militant group has made enough grisly headlines to dominate this conversation on their own, from the genocides in Iraq and Syria to the destruction of cultural history and identity to attempts to erase national borders. They have been a major shaping force of the last decade, but we ended the era with the death of the group's leader in October and an end to the proto-state earlier in the year. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. So here's Willie Lowry, one of the National's video journalists, who was on the ground in Syria earlier this year to witness the fall of the so-called caliphate in the deserts around Baghuz. He also travelled to Iraq to see where the militants are regrouping in the rugged mountains. From that moment in 2014 when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi stood atop the pulpit at the Al-Nuri Mosque in Mosul to really just a few months ago when he was killed in, in Idlib, Syria, this group has dominated headlines. It has been behind or responsible for some of the worst atrocities of the last 10 years from the Yazidi genocide to the attacks in Paris at the Bataclan uh, to just this April and uh, the Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka. This is a group that at one point really threatened to completely rewrite the regional maps. And it's easy to forget just how terrifying uh, a threat they posed at one point. And while Donald Trump may say that they're completely 100% defeated, I fear that that may not be the case. And while for me they certainly define the last decade, I worry that they may also define the next decade. The Syrian conflict has clearly been brutal and bloody. But Kareem Shaheen, who's covered the conflict since the early days and regularly reports for The National, 
says the war has also changed the international norms. I think the biggest story of the last decade um, in the region is, is not the war in Syria, but not, not exactly the war in Syria itself, but the ramifications it has had on the international system and on international law. Um, the war obviously led to the exodus of so many millions of people out of the region seeking refuge in Europe and, and farther ashore. And the news is scarecrow by far-right populists all over the world uh, to seize power uh, in many of the world's leading economies um, and most powerful countries. Uh, and as a consequence, we've seen this resurgence um, of uh, nationalism, uh, of uh, xenophobia, um, of uh, patriotic nationalism, these expressions of, of strong patriotism across, across the globe. Um, and, uh, and as a result, uh, this has transformed the international uh, community and, uh, and various alliances uh, from NATO to the security guarantees that, um, that underpinned security in the, in the Arabian Gulf for so many years. Uh, we, we've also seen a retreat in a lot of the international norms that, that governed warfare and that governed uh, the way um, uh, you know, uh, international relations were conducted. Uh, we saw uh, you know, things like the use of chemical weapons. Uh, we saw the bombing of hospitals. Uh, we saw the use of starvation sieges against civilians. We, we saw the use of indiscriminate bombardment against civilians over a very long period of time, um, almost a decade. And, uh, and this has slowly eroded uh, the, um, the international norms and, uh, uh, you know, that, that we had agreed as, as an international community to abide by in the conduct of war. Iran and its place in the world has also changed so much in the last 10 years. Arthur McMillan, the Nationals' UN correspondent, was in Tehran on the night in 2015 when the nuclear deal with world powers was signed and Iran was welcomed back into the international community. He's also reported on the country extensively since Donald Trump ripped the deal up and reimposed sanctions last year. For Iran, the tens are likely to go down as something of a lost decade. We entered 2010 with the West looking for a way to ensure that Iran could not obtain a nuclear weapon. And we are ending the decade in exactly the same position. Barack Obama's nuclear deal has been destroyed by Donald Trump creating yet another crisis in the Middle East. The Fujairah tanker attacks and the military strikes on the Saudi Aramco oil facilities are all part of the fallout. Critics of the Iran deal should consider where we are now and then reflect on the recent tensions in the Gulf. It's a crisis that threatens to dominate the start of 2020. I spent 2014 15 and 16 in Tehran, and I learned a great deal about the Iranian leadership. Although the government is subservient to the Supreme Leader, it's, it is important, and its credibility has been eroded by the collapse of the nuclear deal, which has only emboldened the hardliners in Tehran. What we've also seen is that the Iranians will not grovel to the United States for an escape route. The Trump administration's reimposition of sanctions and their maximum pressure campaign has hurt Iran badly, but it has also hurt the Iranian people, worst of all. And the recent deadly clampdown on protests in Iran is a significant sign that the regime is under pressure, but it's likely to outride that pressure purely because it has such a stranglehold on the security apparatus in Iran. The secondary fallout of the US decision is that it has created a security rift with Europe. Iran's missiles cannot reach 
the United States, but they can reach mainland Europe. And that is why Germany in particular is upset with America right now. The US election in 2020 will determine quite a lot, not only how America wants to proceed in terms of its foreign policy, but there may also be an impact in Tehran because what happens in Washington quite often influences the Iranian leadership. Since President um, Donald Trump has been elected, there has been no opportunity for that to happen in Iran. But given that Hassan Rouhani's tenure as president will expire in 2021, we could see some quite dramatic changes and a possibility or a possible opening for the hardliners to come back into power. Slightly further afield in Afghanistan, the National's regular reporter in Kabul, Rushi Kumar, sees the move towards peace talks in America's longest war as a huge milestone in the 18-year conflict. Personally, I think um, the peace talks in Afghanistan is probably the biggest story of the decade for this country, for this region, because for the first time it gives Afghans and it gives the world an opportunity to consider some form of stability, some um, look forward to some kind of stability in this country after talking about uh, years and decades of war. Being able to cover the peace talks and being able to cover the excitement around the peace talks, the hope and expectations of the Afghans for the future. But while that's all happening, there are still the daily horrors of war. In the last five years, things just seem to take turn for the worse and, and, and the conflict really escalated really quickly, especially in the last two years, with not just the Taliban growing powerful, but also with groups like ISIS emerging. So um, that was that was a little bit of a surprise because um, I found myself covering conflict, which, um, well, which not, not to say I wasn't emotionally prepared for, but also um, I wasn't... Uh, you know, it, it felt a little overwhelming, you know, because um, I did not expect to to see so much violence. I did not expect to find myself um, and my Afghan colleagues, you know, to find ourselves standing outside hospitals and, and, and talking to, you know, civil survivors of attacks and talking to families of, of people who've, who've perished in the attacks or and actually documenting so much um, uh, human tragedy. I really did not did not see, I did not expect that. The intensity of the violence and the amount of the violence was definitely a surprise for me at least a few years ago. Uh, and it was not what I hoped, um, you know, this decade would end, end into, at least not for Afghanistan. Joyce also pointed out that on all this instability, the rapid change and the chaos, it's all contributed to a hugely unpredictable news cycle Stable faces of the Middle East have been removed and alliances redrawn seemingly overnight. Uh, the most surprising event or trend of the last decade uh, has to be the unpredictability of the news cycle. Uh, whether it's uh, the Arab Spring, uh, the Donald Trump election victory, the Brexit, uh, or the Qatar crisis, uh, it does feel that we are in uncharted territory when it comes to news events. It's becoming harder and harder uh, to know what will be tomorrow's uh, headline. It's becoming almost impossible to project events or, or, or elections in the West. And that in itself is both exciting and overwhelming. Mina Al-Arabi, the National's Editor-in-Chief, 
sees one of the major changes of the Middle East in the last 10 years is potentially the peak and hopeful decline of sectarianism as a major driver of conflict. This decade has been packed with big stories from the region, but a key theme has been that of sectarianism. In some ways, we saw the peak of the worst of sectarianism, particularly in Iraq with the civil strife that took place in the country. But at the same time, we saw its peak and decline. I think the big story that we're going to take away from this decade is the decline of the false narrative that sectarianism is what drives people in the region, where in reality, it's politics that has been using religion and using sectarianism to try to divide people. But Kareem also highlights that there are changes, partly influenced by regional events, taking place in the West. I think the surprising thing for me over the past decade has been watching how consistently voters in Western democracies uh, have been convinced by populists to vote against their own interests. We've seen this in Brexit, uh, for example, where in the sum, the, uh, Britain leaving the European Union will lead to um, uh, you know, uh, economic uh, decline for many of the people who voted for uh, leaving the EU. Uh, we see this in the US as well, uh, where a lot of um, uh, you know, working class voters vote Republican, even though Republicans are more likely to um, cut social insurance and safety nets and uh, give corporate uh, tax breaks uh, as opposed to supporting individuals. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon and, um, and is obviously tied to a lot of uh, various aspects of um, the way politics are done today, of things like um, uh, migration, um, of changing social norms, of, uh, of increasingly tied up um, uh, links between uh, people around the world, um, and uh, the decline of, uh, of old jobs like manufacturing and, uh, and industrial jobs uh, in favor of more automation. Uh, so these are all uh, factors that, uh, that I'm sure play a part in um, getting people to vote against their own interests. Uh, but it's been uh, a fascinating uh, story over the past decade as these right-wing populists have gained more ground uh, over the years as a result of uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, as a result of uh, rising concerns um, by uh, middle and working class citizens all over, the, all over the world, and in particular in Western democracies. The rise of right-wing populism, in part a reaction to immigration and the situation in the Middle East, is of particular concern. But it's not all bleak. In parts of the region, things have been changing rapidly and for the better. Incomes have been rising, reforms have been taking place, and new futures envisaged. Taylor highlights Saudi Arabia as one of those places undergoing radical change and points to it as one of the most surprising developments of the decade for those who have been long reporting on the region. Here's why. What surprised me most about the last decade was the massive social, economic and geopolitical changes that have taken place in Saudi Arabia. Long the slow and steady hand, Saudi Arabia was the old reliable Middle East politics. You knew their stances, you knew their policies today, you knew what they were yesterday, and you knew what they would be a year from now. But the massive changes that have taken place since King Salman took to the throne in Saudi Arabia for the first time was put front and center and at the spotlight in regional developments. To see a more assertive Saudi steering its own diplomacy, pushing for consensus on its own national priorities, was a dramatic break from its role as the quiet godfather sitting in the back, nodding. Suddenly, Saudi was front page news day in and day out in newspapers across the world. 
Whether you like it or loathe it, the social and economic changes that have taken place over the last four years have transformed not only the image of Saudi Arabia abroad, but in a way, what it means to be a Saudi today. Whether it be a Saudi-led war or rap concerts in Riyadh, I think I can speak uh, for many people who have been reporting on the region for a long time that very few of us saw this one coming. And there are other positives happening right across the region as well. Uh, in the United States, at the Mayo Clinic in uh, Minnesota, where uh, an Arab-American doctor uh, by the name of Mohammed uh, Baidun succeeded through stem cell uh, research to cure a severe spinal cord injury that allowed a man uh, to walk again. Uh, I love about this story, the power of science, uh, the contribution of uh, immigrants, Muslims, and others uh, to the United States, and the potential uh, for uh, stem cell uh, research uh, for the future. I think one of the most important and feel-good stories is the raft of legislative changes for women's rights that we have seen in Tunisia and in Jordan and in Lebanon and most recently the beginning of changes in Sudan. This was the result of decades of hard work by Arab women activists, and they finally saw big wins over the last three years. It wasn't imposed from outside. uh, It wasn't pressured from up top. It was earned and won by these amazing Arab women activists uh, and average women from the streets, uh, and I look forward to see what they have in store for us in 2020 and beyond. One of the biggest uh, or the most positive and the most interesting story to cover uh, in the last five years was the three-day ceasefire that happened last year during Eid um, in the summer. And it was it was it was epic in many ways because for the first time, um, Kabul was you know, was euphoric, like everybody was out on the streets. Uh, There was no fear and dread. My favorite story of the decade is actually uh, something that um, uh, that is partially uh, happening in the region, uh, and that is the increasing focus on climate change as a key driver of um, you know political movements and uh, as a key voting block. And this is something that was happening um, to a certain extent in the Middle East when I was there, but uh, but not to a significant enough extent. And I hope that over the next uh, few years. The drive to look at uh, what we're doing to the climate more critically, uh, to look at what fossil fuels and pollution is doing to the environment, what warfare is doing to to our environment uh, in the Middle East, uh, to the impact of the water crises uh, on the region, and uh, for policymakers to start to do more about this. And finally, in the UAE, there's space. This year, the Emirates took a major leap for the region in sending the first Emirati to the International Space Station. Engine turbo pump at twice speed. Engines at maximum thrust. And lift off. Lift off. Ali Skripochka, Jessica Mirza, Ali Al-Mansuri leaping forth from Gagarin start on their way to the International Space Station. Here's the Nationals news editor, Rory Reynolds, talk about this. When Hazza Al-Mansuri stepped up to enter Soyuz MS-15 in a spacesuit, it finally hit home that we were sending the first Emirati to space. There had been great fanfare, growing interest up until that point. But when he stood there, stooped under the weight of that blue cosmonaut suit, you knew it was real. 
The mission to the International Space Station was one of the genuine global news events for the Emirates of the last decade. It may well capture young Emirati's imaginations for years to come. Ten years ago, none of this had even been thought of. Burj Khalifa had not yet opened, and the country was still um, in the midst of a financial crisis. But this isn't about that one has a moment blasting off to space on a Russian-owned rocket. The missions continue, sending homegrown satellites up to improve business and communications. The planned Mars probe, Hope, which will blast off next year, will be the greatest challenge yet. What is clear is that this very small nation, tucked away in the Arabian Gulf, has found its place in space. Thanks this week to all our contributors. This was Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the programme in your favourite podcasting app to get all the latest episodes. And if you have a moment, please leave a review. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young. Beyond the Headlines, we'll be taking a break in the first week of January, but we'll be back in the second. <laughs>